Hi there, and thank you for tuning in to Asking for a Friend. My name is Katrina Buffard, and I'm a clinical sexologist and psychotherapist. This podcast provides you with evidence-based information and real-world advice about getting to know yourself better sexually, and it covers all those topics that we would rather ask about for a friend. Just a warning, this podcast may contain conversations of a sexual nature and isn't suitable for kids. Dr. Jenny Kutsia has been described by those who know her as an incredibly passionate and unstoppable force of nature. She's a seasoned researcher and program implementer, having spent more than a decade on the front lines of the HIV and violence epidemics in South Africa. She specialized in working with hard-to-reach populations, highly vulnerable women and men, and understanding the intersection of HIV, mental health, and violence. She is the founder and CEO of the African Potential Management Consultancy and a principal researcher at the Perinatal HIV Research Unit at Baragwanath Hospital. There is a disclaimer on this episode. Some of the things that Jenny speaks to and the experiences that she's had may be really hard to hear for some listeners and may be quite triggering. Jen, thank you so much for joining me today um, on Asking for a Friend. I'm really, really thrilled that you agreed to speak to me. You are such a fascinating human being and you've done such fascinating work. Um, and I'd really love to hear a little bit about the research you've done with sex workers. I know that that's a very broad question for someone who's done so much research, um, but maybe you're able to just give us a brief overview of, of your findings and um, the work that you've been doing. Morning, Kat. So thanks for having me on. So it all started about 20 years ago with um, doing work with female sex workers in Johannesburg City Deep. Um, and it was an incredibly extraordinary life-changing experience to have had. I'd recently had children. Um, I'd recently closed a, a business. Um, so I'd been in, in the corporate sector up until that point and had decided that I wanted a life change and realized that I wanted to be working with women that really struggled to have a voice in an eloquent fashion where they, they would be heard and, and their opinions would be respected um, and stumbled really by accident across um, the sex work sector and then once, once I'd listened to a number of, of conversations and been to a number of talks on sex work and HIV and violence exposure, I'd realized that this really was the, the perfect fit for me. Um, and so I ended up going into Joburg City Deep in the middle of the night on my own. Um, and true story, I had my medical aid card duct taped to my stomach because when I was a child and I watched Rescue 911, if someone stabbed you or you got shot, the first thing the paramedics did was they would cut your shirt off. And that way they'd know that they must take me to a private hospital. So it was only logical to duct tape your medical aid card to your chest. And I had 400 rand shoved down my bra so that if I needed to bribe my way out of any kind of difficult situation, I'd be able to do that. Um, I wore a pair of running tackies because I thought that would be the most sensible thing. Clearly, I, I somehow felt that I'd you know, I'd become the Hussein Bolt of Joburg um, in the middle of the night, if need be. And, um, and off, I, off I went. And I had my, my um, mobile phone tucked very, very well hidden under my driver's seat with a location um, ping on it so that my family were able to track me. And, um, yeah, went, went into town, um, guided by an amazing, amazing woman who had been involved in the sex work sector for many years and who herself 
um, happened to also transact in sex. And um, she started introducing me to groups of women on the street. And just what started off as, as intending to be a master's um, you know, dissertation that was meant to be very, very academic um, and really was very biomedical and wanting to look at sexual and reproductive health care became a journey of, of humanity and of self-discovery and self-reflection where I met women who were mothers like myself who gloated over their children as much as I gloated over my own children who had the most incredible sense of humanity and incredible compassion for the world and the people around them and who were immensely brave. They would go into this dark and dangerous space every night in order to put food on the table and to send their children to school. And I came across women who were, uh, there was a woman who was dying of cervical cancer um, mm. and she described in graphic detail the intense pain that she experienced every time she sold sex but she was from Zimbabwe, and at that stage, um, you couldn't buy food in Zim. And there were, so the need for her to be able to send home food as the primary breadwinner for an entire family was immense. And so her view was that you know, her pain was secondary to her desire to help her family survive before she died. I met women who had fathered children that had been... Um, fathered by their own fathers, so, you know, where there was family incest involved um, in, and horrific stories around that and around maternal abuse in those situations as well. Um, really, really touching. Women who were wearing nothing but a towel, um, the one woman around her, and it was the middle of winter, it was icy cold, and I remember sitting down and kind of semi-joking as I put my jacket on about how cold it was, and her voice sounded like she was joking. She said to me, well, you're obviously not used to the cold winters in Joburg. And I turned to her to sort of laugh and looked at her face. And although she was smiling, her eyes were so sad and so dead. And there she was in this old tattered towel just around her waist. Um, and she proceeded before I'd in fact even managed to consent her, she'd started crying. And we had to contain and then be able to consent her and then and then allow her to kind of open up. And it was the most amazing, touching interview. She was a very, very beautiful woman, covered in scars, stab wounds all over her face, her arms, everywhere. And she described how, um, you know, how her father and her mother had been immensely abusive and how she was unable to get access to an ID book um, because she couldn't go back home to them to get access to her, her birth certificate. So she was essentially a, a hidden person um, and she couldn't even get a job as a, as a packer checkers. Um, so she was forced into this life by, by the most horrific circumstances. Um, and it was incredibly emotive speaking to her. And then the last woman that I interviewed, in fact, described police, how they then beat her afterwards so that she wouldn't be able to recognize them um, and identify them. And just the immense injustice of that. And, and a moment later, she was gloating to me about how she had three children and two of them, one had finished a law degree, one was studying nursing, and the third was in the trick. And all of this she'd paid for on the back of sex work. So it really made me completely reflect on my life and how I was in the world um, and my views on the other 
and on how we other you know different population groups and through this journey um we've, we've started a sex work program in soweto that's been running for about the last 10 years um, and i've run a number of research programs through that predominantly looking at the intersection of hiv violence and mental health and what we're finding is that firstly and logically given the exposure to number of sex partners and the number of of um, sex acts per day and per week and per month, um, the HIV prevalence in this population is very, very high. So in South Africa, HIV prevalence among sex workers ranges from about 34% up to about 90%, depending on where you are in the country um, and the kinds of sex work that you're engaging in, um, the kinds of sex work being the, the types of venues. So are you, you know, based outdoors? Are you based indoors? Are you based in a brothel? Are you on the street? Are you in a tavern? Are you um, selling to truck drivers, et cetera, et cetera? And there's different risk profiles that come with each of these venue types. Um, we can see that the exposure to violence is insanely high. Um, you know, roughly 80% of sex workers have been exposed to some form of physical or sexual violence in the past um, in the past year. And in fact, in a study that we've recently done on a national level, looking at this, we found areas in South Africa where there's 100% exposure to rape in adulthood and 100% exposure to childhood trauma. Um, and over 78% of women report having been, um, having been gang raped. So really horrific violence stats, um, quite traumatic to you know, obviously, obviously for the for the woman, immensely traumatic. I mean, the amount of trauma in this space is huge, um, but also as as researchers coming in, very very traumatic to to come across and hold a space and and hear these things, and then and then go back to almost an alternate universe. You know, you go back into your normal life, and then around mental health, unsurprisingly, we see very high levels of depression, of post traumatic stress disorder. Um, of alcoholism, um, much lower levels of drug addiction, contrary to, to popular belief. Um, we've, you know, we've done large studies on this and we see it's not as high. And then very worryingly, what we also see is that the level of resistance to antiretroviral treatment for HIV um, is definitely growing and is quite severe. So when we did our first study in about 2016, we found that about 16% of, of HIV-infected female sex workers um, have, have HIV drug resistance. And from the data that we captured last year, we can see that it's, it's a substantially higher number. Um, if memory serves me, it's sitting at, at um, close to 35% of oh. HIV-infected female sex workers. And it's predominantly amongst um, women who have either been exposed to treatment um, and have for some reason had an interruption and an, in, tr an interruption to your treatment could be that you didn't take it, you forgot. It could be that when you go to sell sex, you don't take your treatment with you because you're in a bar um, or you're in a tavern for the weekend and the nurse at the clinic has been telling you for years, the communication has been don't drink and take ART. Um, and equally, it can be as a result of violence. And I think often that's the case. Um, you know, if police arrest women, there, will, there are many, many reports of them refusing access to antiretroviral treatment for, for sex workers. Um, but equally, if your partner is very abusive, there's lots of data, not just in sex work populations, but in pregnant women as well, um, that show that, that um, adherence to treatment then is, is really poor. 
and one of the things that we've done in, in all of this research that's been incredible to to observe and to be a part of is that we've taken sex workers from the community and upskilled them to be our research team. So as opposed to privileging educated people who have not previously sold sex and who wouldn't actually necessarily be able to identify as closely with some of the issues being spoken about and wouldn't necessarily um, be perceived to be completely non-judgmental. Our approach has been to take members of the community to upskill them, to privilege their voices throughout the research journey in terms of how we develop our methodologies, the kinds of questions that we ask, um, the kinds of response sets that are put into place and how these relate to the different characteristics um, of sex work and how it functions um, in South Africa and in, in the very kind of eclectic ways in which it functions across the country. Um, and then to, to privilege really their health and well-being through the research process, firstly by providing adequate training and adequate psychosocial support and teaching them to do trauma containment and debriefing um, and, and provide psychosocial support to participants that they're interviewing. Um, and then allowing them platforms that they can engage with that allow them to capture data in a way that's really simple and easy um, and privileges the sex worker voice over the researcher voice. So it's been quite an incredible, quite a beautiful journey, um, a real privilege to have been part of for the last 15 years. I mean, I have, I've had goosebumps on, on numerous occasions now while you've been sharing your experiences because... You know, I think there's so much judgment and so much stigma attached to sex work. Unfortunately, the way that society views, um, you know, women who do sex work is lower than. And the, the way that you are telling the human side of the story is so moving. It's creating kind of a lot of sadness in me. And to hear these stories that you you have experienced, you know, of the woman with a towel wrapped around her or the woman who had been stabbed multiple times, the woman who was sending, you know, food back to her family in Zimbabwe, you're really bringing out the humanness of this, this work and the fact that these women are doing whatever they can to not only survive, but to take care of others. And I guess... You know, in, in the stories that you've been telling, I really feel that you had that experience as well in, in seeing a very, very different side to a part of life that has a lot of stigma and shame associated to it. I, th I think you're right. I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head that this is a story of, of humanity. It's a story of immense resilience. Um, resilience in the human spirit is quite incredible to observe when you are um, in these spaces and, um, and bravery. And for me, that was, that was what just touched me. So, and it has touched me repeatedly um, over, the, over the last few years. Um, you know, is, is when, you, when you're little and, and your mom or dad or, or your uncle or your aunt or the teacher says to you, what do you want to be when you grow up? No one puts their hand up and says, I want to be a sex worker. Um, certainly not when you're five or six or you know, when, you, when you're little and you want to be a fireman or a policeman or a nurse or a doctor or a teacher or, um, you know, you want to be a soccer player and a doctor and a rugby player, um, as my son wants to be. <laughs> um, and I think that we often forget, and, and I think society encourages this to some extent, we forget about the humanity in others, that, 
the woman standing on the side of the road, the man begging at the, you know, at the robot. They didn't choose this. This wasn't a life that they thought, shit, this is what I want to be doing, you know. This is like I've, I've reached um, a place of, of self-realization. Um, that's, not how this, that's not how this goes. Um, and many of the stories that we've heard have been so similar in terms of the, the theme that's run through them that really is about wanting better for your family, providing for your family. And in a country where we have unemployment rates, which are, you know, officially are, are incredibly high, um, more than a quarter of our population are unemployed, unofficially they are substantially higher than that, um, where we have massive gender disparities and where we have um, very poor levels of education. You know, while we might look and go, well, X number of children or X percent of kids have passed matric, we have to look holistically. So how many kids are born and survive versus how many are born and, and get a matric? Um, and the reality is that without, a, without even a grade 12, it's very difficult to get any kind of formal employment within the formal working sector. So, you know, to be employed, whether it's at a bid vest doing cleaning or checkers doing packing um, or become a nurse or become a social worker, you really require that grade 12. And for many women, you know, you, you're missing school a week of, a, of every month because you're menstruating um, and young girls don't, particularly in impoverished communities, don't have access to um, pads and tampons and, and, or, or, um, or the cup to, to help them. These dynamics around, you know, we, we kind of all sort of laugh off the sugar daddy phenomenon um, or young girls transacting in sex as kids being kids and being naughty and sexually promiscuous and without actually thinking about the, the deeper issues behind that. Um, young girls don't fall pregnant for grants. Um, people who think that are, are really not understanding the bigger issues and they certainly haven't spent time with any of these young girls. There's a massive power dynamic between men and women in our country full stop. And then there's a massive power dynamic between someone who has and someone who doesn't have as much. And so sex and economics are best of friends. And when young women become breadwinners of fam families or get old enough to be able to support a family that they see as in pain, is starving, is struggling, um, you know, they will transact in what they've got accessible to them, which in this case is, is sex. Um, a young man can go and become a builder. He can become a taxi driver. He can become a bus driver. Um, he can beg more easily on the side of the road. Um, he can, you know, become a gardener. A young woman can become a domestic worker or she can become a sex worker. And um, that's really what this, what this boils down to is that the, there are huge limitations over women. Um, and so the judgments that we level as a society against this, this population, against how people are earning a living, when it is consensual, and I need to stress that, that, um, you know, tra that um, human trafficking is not consensual. Um, anyone under the age of, of 16 for me is not able to make decisions around consent, um, particularly when it comes to selling sex to someone you know, older than them um, and when it comes to the selling of sex. Um, that's childhood exploitation. And in fact, it's childhood exploitation even when you are under um, 18. So this really is about understanding that consensual relationships, 
between a man and a woman of their business. And it actually has very little to do with you and I. But how we treat those people, how we judge them, says a huge amount about us and about our own sexuality, our own insecurities, about the judgments that we level against ourselves and against other people in society um, and the ideologies that underpin that. And those are hugely problematic and I think that we need to start looking beyond those. Um, and for me, what's been beautiful in the hardship of the last six months of COVID is that South Africa is starting to, or all the world, in fact, is starting to, to find its humanity again. Um, and I'm hoping that in this, people will find the humanity around these very marginalized, fringe populations. That was actually something I was going to ask you is that, um, you know, when we were in hard lockdown in March and April, you know, what, what happened to the sex workers? And I heard so many stories of journalists interviewing sex workers who said, I can't go into hard lockdown because if I go into hard lockdown, I won't survive. My family won't survive. I don't have a choice. I have to keep working. I'm not able to stay home and sit on my couch and watch TV for the next, you know, what we thought then was going to be 21 days. And, you know, the, the, the real, the, the, the predominant word that's coming into my mind is sacrifice. I'm, I'm hearing so much sacrifice, personal sacrifice, you know. You, you've said it very clearly. This is not something that you choose at the age of five or six at school that you want to be when you grow up. This is something that you have to do to survive. This is something that these women are having to do to put food on the table for their families or just to be able to have some food every once in a while. This is not something that they are choosing. And I think, you know, you touched on the, the real challenges and obstacles that sex workers face um, a little earlier everything from high rates of HIV transmission um, to ART resistance to gender based violence. So, you know, again, why would anybody willingly choose to be putting themselves into a situation unless there was something that they, you know, they had some choice over? Um, I know that you've done some research into the clients of sex workers, and I'd be really keen to hear a little bit about what, what your findings have been there. Yeah, so that's been quite a phenomenal um, component to this. It's been interesting, um, you know, straddling research and program implementation for so many years. Um, and I've had such a strong sense that we're missing a very important piece of the puzzle in terms of implementation in this country. Um, and that is that all the current implementation focuses very heavily on sex workers. So women have become responsible for the HIV pandemic. They bear the brunt of it in terms of they are much more vulnerable to it but they also bear the brunt of, of expectation around interventions. Um, you know, so PMTCT obviously is for mums, um, you know, or mums-to-be. Um, and in terms of sex work, it's been all about sex workers getting onto ART so that they um, can't, you know, onward transmit the, the virus. But it's also been about sex workers putting condoms onto clients. You know, you need to get his him to wear a condom well it's his penis he actually needs to be the one putting a, a condom on it and so for me that's been a massive gap in this um, you know we do prevention around violence but it's actually been a lot more of post-violence care um, and telling her how not to get raped or how not to get beaten up um, and it's a little bit like you you see those 
memes that are going around at the moment that say, you know, um, how to avoid rape. Well, don't rape. If you feel like raping, don't rape. Call a friend who can hold you down and stop you. Don't go out into public. Don't, you know, don't attack someone in an alley. Um, but our discourse hasn't been that up until, until now. Our discourse has very much been around um, victim blaming and around, you know, telling victims that they mustn't become victims. Mm. And so with this in mind, my view on, on violence and HIV prevention has very much been, but where are the men in this? Where we're very focus, heavily focusing on the feminine aspect of this um, and not on the bridging population into the general population, um, the people who are bringing HIV into these groups of women, um, who are spreading it between the groups of women and who are then taking it out into other, you know, into the general population, um, as well as the, the people who are beating them. And it's no good a sex worker saying to someone who's beating her, no, please don't beat me. I, it doesn't feel nice. Um, you know, if you're beating someone, you don't give a shit that it doesn't feel nice. Yeah. So with that in mind, um, in about 2017 or so, um, we did a, a first preliminary study. It's the first to have been done in South Africa, um, looking at HIV violence mental health and TV amongst female sex workers and their male client partners. Um, and what was incredible was to see the similarities and the differences between these groups. So the one thing that really struck me was that you know, we have very high rates of childhood trauma amongst women. And I would expect that there would be higher rates than you would find amongst the male clients. And that's not what we found. What we found was that childhood trauma was as high, if not higher, amongst the male clients um, compared to the female sex workers. In terms of um, any kind of um, trauma or violence exposure in the past 12 months, the men, 89% of them, reported having some form of physical, sexual, emotional trauma. Um, which was statistically significantly more than what the women were reporting, which was incredible to see. I mean, that's really not what we expected. You kind of anticipate that you've got this strong man. He might have had a, a shitty childhood, some of them, others wouldn't. You know, people buy sex for many different reasons. They could be buying sex because they're disabled, and somehow there's this perception that disabled men or disabled women won't want to have sex. They're asexual, um, and that's not true, you know. So, so they could be purchasing sex for that reason um, they could be buying sex because of the excitement you know that, that there is around it they could be buying sex because they you know they they don't have a girlfriend they need a shag equally there could be something more um, sinister in in their purchasing of sex and and how they go about it um, and what we found was just that these guys were experiencing exceptionally high rates of trauma really really high rates um, and in fact, the, the way that they were presenting in terms of mental health was equally as high. It differed slightly to that of, of the female sex work population that we looked at. Um, we found much higher levels of alcoholism and drug abuse, sorry, of drug abuse, not of alcoholism, of drug abuse um, amongst the men, substantially higher than, than we saw amongst the women. And, and worryingly, the area that we targeted, we were looking at predominantly truck drivers, taxi drivers, miners, and then unemployed men. So it was slightly disconcerting to see that we had a group of truck drivers that were, that were high. We then asked a set of questions um, on perpetration of violence. And, and it ranged from perpetrating violence against um, 
a, uh, an intimate partner, a current intimate partner, against former intimate partners, against you know, a family member or any woman, against a stranger that you didn't know, and against sex workers. And in fact, we believe that we have the highest prevalence of violence perpetration reported in the country, higher than that that was reported um, in, in a, roughly the same time at, in Deep Slurt, um, and, and incredibly scary to see. Um, nearly 60% of the men reported having engaged in some sort of, some form of rape in the preceding 12 months. So really, really scary stuff to see. Um, made us realize when we looked at our data compared to other data on other men from similar backgrounds, similar circumstances, that we clearly had targeted the right population in that we were accessing clients of sex workers. But what was also really moving um, in this was the stories that the men told that weren't necessarily part of what we were asking in our research. And we, you know, we really profiled very cleverly and very carefully our interviewer. So we looked for a guy who looked like your kind of homie that you could talk to anytime, like he could sell ice to an Eskimo. Um, and you would, you'd tell him your kind of deepest, darkest secrets. He looked like the kind of guy that wasn't judging you. He'd probably done the same thing as you, you know, and so that for us was very, very important, but that he had kind of his heart was in the place that we were wanting it in. So he had huge sense of humanity, um, he, although he, he was able to have a very non-judgmental approach with these guys, he in fact was very touched um, by their stories and very upset often by, by some of the things they would, they would tell him. Um, so he required quite a, quite a substantial amount of debriefing afterwards. Um, but in the interviews that we did with these guys, they would often say there's so much for women. You know, women can go to a clinic, they've got people they can talk to. There's nothing for us. Who do we speak to? Who helps us when we have problems? And what became really evident was the theme of disempowerment amongst these men, of just how disempowered so many South African men, um, particularly in this, in this space that we were working in, are feeling. And I suspect that this is the case for many more men in South Africa. Um, particularly, it's likely that amongst men who are quite violent, um, that we see this kind of very disempowered um, profile. And on the back of the work that we did then in this small mining town, we are currently, um, well, it's been slightly, COVID's put a spanner in the work, so it's on pause, but we are doing a much larger study with clients of sex workers. Um, and we've also, I've been advising um, Sonke Gender Justice on an intervention that they have suggested for male clients of sex workers. We think that this is a really important aspect of programming with the sector in order to, um, to ultimately address HIV. But to, you know, if you wanna do that, you need to address the, the very complex lives that people have and, um, and help them with those. You know, I, I'm just listening with such intent. I mean, I know, you know, I know about sex work through my studies, but I've never delved into it in, in, a, in a much more kind of focused way, definitely not in the way you have. Um, and listening to you share some quite horrifying and harrowing statistics, um, again, I have goosebumps. And again, for me, I hear that real, that real humanity coming through. I mean, I know from my work, I know from a lot of the psychological theories that I use in my work that 
when a child experiences physical, emotional, or sexual abuse in sort of the first 10 years of their life, it is highly correlated to uh, perpetrating physical, sexual, or emotional abuse later on, to engaging in high-risk behaviors, to the development of you know, intense pathology, personality disorders, ongoing depression, self-harm, suicidal ideation, and so on. And it's really, really quite unnerving to hear not only how many men you found, much to your surprise, had had histories of trauma higher than that of women, but then 60% of those men were perpetrating sexual assault or had perpetrated some, some form of a sexual assault in the past 12 months. I mean, I, I'm wondering, as a woman and as a mother, you know, you touched on it briefly earlier, but just how doing this research has given you a different perspective on what it is that you're doing in day-to-day -day life and how that impacts how you talk to people or how you share with people about what is actually happening I want to say behind closed doors, but you know whether it's a door or in a tavern or in, or in a you know in an alleyway, that we have very little understanding of and very often just judgment around. So, Kat, it feels a lot like there's an alternate universe, and that these two universes are, are side by side. And if you open your eyes, if you if you really open them, um, you allow yourself to acknowledge your privilege. And, um, you know, your privilege could be white privilege, your privilege could be privilege of, of having, um, you know, privilege comes in many forms. It could be having education, it could be having a job. But if you allow yourself to lift the veil that, that society helps us to, to put there, it makes us feel safe and comfortable. Um, what you see is that we stand on the precipice of, of revolt every day. Um, and that by the grace of God, it doesn't tip that way. That's really how it feels often um, when I'm going into, into communities um, that are experiencing the forms of poverty that we see. There's a, I mean, I, I do have to caveat, I probably should have done it earlier, that obviously I work with extremely impoverished communities. So there are other communities of, of men and women engaging in sex work um, that probably fit a slightly different profile to, to what I described. Um, but I've specialized in, in working with this exceptionally marginalized, very, very hard to reach, very, very impoverished fringe populations. Um, and I guess by way of a story, I can, I can tell you what it's like. So when I'd first gone into Joburg City Deep, as I described earlier, um, I, after I'd left on the first night, um, I took my phone once I was out of town, I took my phone out from under my car seat and I must have had you know, 50 messages from friends and family and everyone saying, well, you know, where are you? Are you okay? We haven't heard from you. You've been gone for four or five hours. What's going on? And um, so I listened to all of these and then I listened to my husband's voice note that says, hey, babe, um, the Joburg waters cut off the water in the area. Won't you just grab some on your way home? <laughs> and I was, I was mortified. I was like, my husband actually doesn't understand what I've just been, been into, you know, or the danger that I've just put myself in. And I was very cross with him for a very long time. And eventually I, I, um, I spoke to him about it. And he just said to me, you know, Jen, if you'd known how afraid I was, you never would have done it. And I couldn't stand in the way, stand between you and this calling 
that you have. And for me, it is. It's, it's been a, a calling in life that I myself have experienced um, sexual assault. And that for me, it's immensely important that women and men that have experienced this have safe spaces, that we help them to find a voice and that we do work that's, that's going to help everyone find the humanity in, in each other as well as in themselves. Um, but it's incre an incredibly difficult journey. It's meant literal blood, sweat and tears. I've had knives and guns pulled on me. I've had someone become psychotic in my office and try and strangle me. Um, I've had a death threat against me. Um, I've had many, many hours away from my children. Um, I've suffered from severe vicarious trauma. So that's trauma where you, someone else has experienced the physical trauma, but you become traumatized by hearing their story. And some of the stories that I've heard and some of the things that I've seen have been immensely, um, they've taken a huge emotional toll on me. It's, it's been very, very difficult. I feel like for the last 15 years, I've been in, in this alternate universe or moving between these two universes. Um, and often rife with guilt when you come home, that you have food on the table, um, that you are able to have choice, that I, you know, I went to a very good private school. My parents were, um, you know, came from very humble beginnings, but they, they were very blessed in that they, um, my mum met a nun who, who used her life savings to put my mother through medical school. Um, and my mother then put my father through um, engineering and they were very, very blessed in terms of the circumstances and, and the context of our country at that time that they were able to do very well for themselves. Um, and so I do, I come from a place of immense privilege. Um, and there's huge guilt that comes with that. And it took a very, very long time for me to come to a point of acceptance that if I didn't allow myself to come home to this piece of, of heaven almost, um, that I was unable to go back into what has felt a lot like hell, that you step into hell every day and you try and help people through it. Um, that heaven and hell are not this concept that will happen after you die. They're actually very real and they're here around us every day. Um, and they are how we live and where we live in a state of mind. Um, and so that's been immensely difficult. It's, but, but there's some beautiful things that have come out of it. Um, some incredible friendships, um, the, the privilege of seeing and holding spaces for people to grow in a way that I think very few um, people ever, ever get to experience that. And it really is immensely beautiful to, to do. Um, you know, the privilege of, of being able to travel internationally to speak about the work that I do. Um, and then currently starting up a foundation that focuses on growing other researchers um, academics, young South Africans to do the kind of work that, that I've been doing, to think innovatively and out of the box and change lanes, um, to take away poverty tax from them so that they can study further and to really empower um, young women and, and young girls through this kind of work. And so for me, there's an evolution that takes place that I feel that my time in the sex work sector has is coming to an end, my ability to contribute in a meaningful way while maintaining my own mental health is, is becoming compromised. Um, and so it's important that I, that I change lanes um, while, while I'm able to, um, and I'm very privileged in that I'm able to, able to do that. I feel like you could keep telling me stories and, you know, the <laughs> results that you found and the experiences that you've had for hours and hours. Um, 
But I, I like to end every podcast with a, a, a question to my guests of what's the most surprising thing that you've found or learned while you've been doing this work? That we're all just the same cat. It's, it's a veneer. The difference between you and me and someone else is, is just a veneer. We all are essentially the same. Um, we all want to be happy. We all want to feel good about ourselves. We all want to be loved and we want to love. Um, and everything else is, is noise. I feel incredibly emotionally moved by this, this chat we've had today. And I want to thank you so much for your honesty, your vulnerability, your expertise and your knowledge um, and for, you know, choosing to do this work because this is something that you did choose to do. So Jen, thank you so much for joining me today. Such a pleasure, Kat. Thanks for chatting to me. Got a question you'd like to ask for a friend? Reach out to me via my website or Instagram and I'll be sure to include it in a Q&A episode soon. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it.